Hey listeners, I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. We are celebrating 100 episodes of the Deal With Yield podcast. And whether you followed us from the start or you're just tuning in for the first time, Joel, Kyle, and I really want to take a moment to thank you for helping us reach this huge milestone. It's all because of your support and listenership that we've been able to share our views on the latest industry trends and agronomic practices. So if you really enjoy the show please be sure to subscribe or just share it with a friend. And thanks again for tuning in every Friday to The Deal with Yield. Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm John Zook, agronomist for Winfield United. I'm Joel Whipperforth, Director of Digital Transformation for Winfield United. So today on the show, Joel and I are going to be looking at soybean seed selection for 2020. Joel, I know this was a different year for a lot of growers out there. What do you think were some of the key takeaways from this season that we can transfer into 2020? Well, the first thing that comes to mind with soybean seed selection is weed control. And we've talked about corn seed selection before, and certainly herbicide selection plays a role there, but there's quite a bit more utility in the herbicide selection and the range that's available to kill, in particular, broad leaves in corn. But in soybeans, this was a year where two years ago, there was a lot of talk about dicamba use and off-target movement. But this year, it's really been quieted, and I think due in part to the use of the technology, more comfort, more adoption of dicamba acres in general. But it's also probably the first place to start is, do I have resistant weeds? And if the answer is yes, you probably need to be drifting over to a selection between either a dicamba-resistant bean or a liberty-resistant gene, assuming that the weed is Roundup-resistant in that case. And if you don't, well, then your herbicide options become a secondary piece. So that's, that'd be the first place I would start is, you know, what's my weed profile? What's the history of resistant biotypes on that farm? So I kind of get to the point where a lot of times, we, hey, we sprayed this weed for five years in a row when soybean when we've had soybeans in the crop and it's still not dying Are you, do you think it's resistant <laughs> well i mean our, our, i mean because hey it rained two hours after and then oh I, I didn't put the maybe it was the adjuvant package or i didn't have gallons per acre coverage there's a series of excuses that we kind of have to go through i think before we finally realize like oh yeah maybe maybe it wasn't my excuse that i always came up with why not controlling it was i have resistant weeds and right. you had to kind of fess up to saying, here, I got a problem. Now I got to make the choice. And so some people think that denial is a river in East Africa, but it could be the herbicide resistance right in your field. So it's funny, on the way up here, I had two phone calls that came in from separate people and they're saying, hey, how do I send these weed samples, water hemp weed samples, to get tested for resistant biotypes? And I mean, it's $50. You can send it to University of Illinois. They're going to tell you if it's PPO glyphosate resistant, all really easy stuff. Two weeks later, you know your answer. But I always have to chuckle because it's like, well, if you got to the point where knowing that you had to send a test you probably are just resistant. Like if it looks like an apple, smells like an apple, tastes like an apple, it's probably an apple. And so it's funny that we get to this trait conversation because that's my number one too is if, you, if you're going to choose soybeans for next year, it's about weed control and admitting to yourself like, hey, we need to take the next step. Let's move into a Liberty or E3 or a Dicamba platform if we need to. Yeah, I forgot about that mode of action. 24D is also one of the other options in there for mm -hmm. the E3 platform. 
So what's exciting is once you get weed control checked off, and this is a, a decision tree. I know you love to draw decision trees, and I work with computer programmers. So you know all of this is about adding logic to the sequence, mm-hmm. and you know then it really becomes about a performance conversation. You know how well did your soybean perform? But so much about performance is specific to the area that they're tested in. And I know we have a couple of uh, research plots that are right along a main highway, and people always wonder. Like, why are we growing soybeans there? And sometimes it's to test for really high salt and stress tolerances, IDC. But really, once performance is out of the way, that's a place to open it up. But before that performance piece, one of the things that we see in the answer plots quite a bit is that a top performer and a mid performer actually can outperform the field variability together and something we call a blend bean. So mm-hmm. you work with the guys that do these selections for blends. How do they come up with the right combination of beans? So I think it, to make it simple, it comes down to, hey, we got to have a maturity that's somewhere close so they're maturing upright. But then more importantly, it's kind of like the offensive-defensive play. So I know that's maybe old terminology, but it's setting criteria of, hey, maybe one bean has a little bit more top-end yield, but it doesn't have as good phytophthora protection, maybe isn't as good as on IDC or SDS. And then we'll mix it with a bean that we know has really good IDC tolerance, can survive through cool, wet, damp periods in the spring. And so we can make sure that our if we do have those situations arise, that they come together and that bean can still keep that average yield across that field to where it needs to be. So it's kind of like having a dual hybrid planter just by putting a blend together in a soybean. Yeah, and so those wind packs are oftentimes those combinations are exclusive to the cropland brand and really regionalized based on the performance that came out of the plot. So performance and yield is a key piece in there. One of the things I'm always fascinated by is performance on corn typically means higher maturities equals more yield. But sometimes on soybeans, the earlier maturities can get just as good a yield. How does that performance equation work? Are, you know, are we trying to beat disease? What makes a 1-4 bean do just as good as a 1-8 bean some years? So I think most of the time, a whole nother podcast would be discussing how maturity has been derived. But when you look at maturity, typically it's about the flowering window is kind of really what it boils down to is that flowering window. And sometimes we can get really high yields with a short flowering window or an early flowering window because we are avoiding a lot of the stressful periods that we typically see in that particular growing season. Whereas if you have a later or longer, wider flowering window, you're more susceptible to diseases. And so one of the stories that I often share when I'm training in the plots is a soybean has to live day to day. Okay, so that means unlike a corn plant, corn plants have big roots, large rinds, huge stalks, big thick waxy leaves. They can take up all of their nutrients, they can store them in the plant, and then they go into reproduction and basically they survive as one whole plant. Soybeans, as they transfer from vegetation into reproduction, still have to live day to day. So whatever the nutrients, nitrogen, sulfur, potassium that that soybean plant's going to use for the day, it has to bring it up. It has to have sunlight, make it into sugars, and then it burns the sugars to survive overnight, and whatever's left over goes into packing that seed. Okay, so the soybean can really flux and change and yield by its response to environment. And so that flowering period is a really critical time that the yields can be changed. One thing that you gain by a later maturity or longer flowering period is you have more potential to say, hey, I'm still flowering, I could take advantage of 
of that later rainfall or that advantageous area. Whereas, hey, if you're done flowering from early maturity, you maybe don't get the chance to take advantage of that. So there's those are pluses and minuses, I think, to that maturity. So it sounds like one way to de-risk yourself is to spread out your maturities. Switching between corn and beans late season or, you know, during the season is, is a key piece that in some cases, planting a full season maturity bean, you, you maybe should have harvested a little bit of corn before you finish harvesting all your beans. Mm-hmm. So seeing that practice play out to spread your risk out. What are some other factors when you go into soybean seed selection? So I think, like we talked about, as the traits come into play, choose which avenue you need to go down. But sometimes what I might see is you get down that avenue, make sure there's options there. And this goes back to the farm plan conversation of know which fields are prone to maybe white mold or prone to brown stem rot or SDS, because now you want to make sure that those beans that are susceptible to there, although might be offensive varieties or high yielding varieties, if they get put in that situation, probably is not going to be an optimal scenario. So if you can recognize those fields, take good notes, keep that in the farm plan, now you'll be able to split that up. A lot of what comes down to the soybean lineups is we do have a good selection. The thing is, is just like corn, sometimes the soybeans get put in the shed, they get treated. Hey, they're all the same color and it's late in the season. Let's just make sure we get the beans in the ground and we miss that opportunity to place them and position them in the field. Most of these diseases like IDC, white mold, brown stem rot, SDS, they show up at some way, shape, fashion throughout the season, but they show up and we go, oh, it's here. Let's try to fix it. Most of the time that thing can be solved earlier by preventative measures better than any kind of money you want to spend on it to fix it when that symptomology actually occurs. So I think managing through that is probably the biggest loss in not choosing the right variety on that placement plan is capturing that advantage right there on then. Yeah, I mean, when some of those diseases show up, you can see them plain as day in the R7 tool when you're looking at the satellite image. That's a good place where clicking over and seeing what that variety's resistance was and being able to look up the variety's performance on those particular environments is a good place to kind of balance out what you need to do and then maybe even put it in the notes section for next year so that you can kind of carry that tribal knowledge over and make that. When I look at the disease packages that comes in soybeans, certainly there's diseases or uh, soil stresses, but what about SCN resistance and the whole, do I need multiple modes of action for cysts? Do I need to sample for cysts? I know we had Brad Roteman on an earlier episode talking about Solum trying to do a uh, quantitative analysis or count the numbers of cysts on the soil samples as they came through, but how should I think about cyst as it pertains to seed selection? So I think with a lot of the soybean diseases, they're yield robbers and you don't even know what's happening. Cyst is probably the biggest one that shows no visual above ground symptoms, sometimes really no below ground symptoms, and it can be taken up to 30% of your yield. So 30% of your yield on a 50 bushel crop is a significant amount of soybeans that is 15 bushel that you got to be managing. And that's a large amount, especially when you're times in that by eight, nine, 10, whatever it could be, we can do some pretty good management there. So I think the number one thing is the pregnancy test, Joel. Hey, do you got cysts or do you not? And then how pregnant are you? Are you three months, six months or ready to give birth on the cyst? Because that'll allow you to say, hey, do I need to make a rotational change? How extreme is it? Or can I manage through with maybe it's a resistant issue with a soybean seed? Or do I need to make a seed treatment 
and have a soybean trade in there to help protect against assist. So I think it'll allow you to tree that out and then say, make a decision to get the most yield off the acre. You know, you triggered something there when you talk about rotating out of it. And it's not just as simple as rotating out for one year, but it might be about rotating out for multiple years. And there's a crop budget calculator that Iowa State uses that actually allows you to play out a scenario of a five-year rotation, whether it's, you know, two years corn, one year beans, every other year, or if it's a long-term corn rotation. And it's really interesting when you start to play around in here of, you know, the first year you're at 45 bushel beans, second year corn, third year 45 bushel beans, and then a next year corn, and following another 45 bushels, that 50-50 rotation isn't always the optimum profitability But if you can break that cycle and on the third year of beans rotating back in, you can go from 45 to maybe 55 or 60 because you've broke that rotation of disease pressure. I think that's one of the underestimated pieces. If you haven't taken a look at your fields that are in longer rotations and the yield levels there and putting that into a a multi-year crop rotational budget could really open your eyes to some management practices that you need to change but also some seed selection that you might be overlooking some disease packages in the genetics that your retailer is helping you with. Yeah, and I think that's all derived and determined from that that original soil sample of, hey, you've got to have something that you can measure before you even can get into the management concept of saying, hey, where do we go from here? So I think that's a big component of it. And a lot of times my eyes got opened uh, last fall when I had a agronomist approach me and say, hey, Uh, I got this home farm I've been working on with this grower and it's got like 61 bushel beans this year. And I was like, oh, congratulations. Like that's some of the higher yielding beans in the area compared to what we had in 2018. He goes, well, no, no, no. Here's what I wanted to tell you is we threw everything at that thing and I only got 61 bushel. Like what's going on? And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, did you ever test for cysts? And he said, oh, no, I guess we didn't. Well, cyst samples came back and go, huh, I guess we have high cyst in that field. Oh, I just was throwing cysts out in there because he's like, I did everything, this, 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 and this. And the only thing I had left was, hey, did you test for cysts? And cysts came back really high. And so this year, as it goes into soybeans for next year, they'll be looking at it a little closer. But definitely trying to manage those cyst counts is probably a key. And up for, hey, do we just rotate multiple years of corn to try to mitigate through this? And then it begs the question of, hey, if that high-yielding farm for the area was under a lot of cyst pressure. What are some of my lower yielding farms look like and how do I manage through them? So what you don't know sometimes doesn't hurt until you know and then you got to figure out how to fix it. So when you talk about cyst samples, what's a high count? What's the threshold? So there's a lot of interpretation there. Some of it depends on the the amount of replications that that cyst can squeeze in throughout the season. Here in the northern geography, we're two to three life cycles, so we don't amplify as much as southern geographies do. But taking that into account, high for me would really be anything over 2,000. Okay. Okay. That would be high. And I mean, we were getting some levels of 10, 25, some 32,000 cysts per 100 cc's of soil. So really high, but I mean, let's take this into a frame of mind here. Some of the samples that were testing 32,000, two grid points away, I was getting zeros, Hmm. right? So I had variability within that same field. Or the question on the soil sampling is, can we really answer 
what the levels are by a soil sample. No, we can just get a gauge for where that field is at. So there's some variability within the field, but there's also this discrepancy that we have with counting the eggs in that one cup worth of sample that we collect. Yeah, it's not necessarily economical to go out and grid sample for soybean cyst nematode. So since it doesn't fall into that work stream, people tend to ignore yes. the cyst sample altogether. But if you were to go out and you were looking at the 80-acre field, how would you go about taking a cyst sample in that field? Would you look for a hot spot, a low-yielding spot, a high-yielding spot? Would you look for one high and one low? How, how would you go about assessing yeah, how so, many samples? So today? most of the time I'd go to areas that have compaction areas, areas where the soybeans stressed out, grassy waterway types of areas, areas where soil gets runoff and moved through, and then, of course, your high, low-yielding areas. So maybe if you have an 80-acre field, maybe five to 10 samples is max. Typically, I like to say if I got grid points on those fields, I'll stay on the grid point. And I'll just maybe do pick five, six grid points that are at high interest. And I'm always going to give me the worst spot in the field. Where I think the cysts are going to be worst, I want to know what the worst spot is because then I can generally make the assumption that everything is either the same or better than the rest of the field. So I always like to see what the worst spot is because then I can feel like I made a better management decision off of that. Yeah, so pairing up the right cyst and trait technology inside the soybean is one thing, but seed treatments have come a long way for us to be able to manage the cyst that's in the ground as well. You know, talk a little bit about how seed treatments play a role in cyst protection. So there's a few different versions of seed treatments that play a role in cyst protection. And uh, part of it is, hey, can we have a biological, so to say, to protect a part of barrier around that seed so that cyst can't penetrate or feed. So really what that cyst does is the juvenile penetrates in, feeds on the soybean root, and they breed, and then the female comes in and lays those eggs, right? So can we put a barrier around so that that juvenile can never enter and feed on that root? Can we put a active ingredient in the ground that basically creates a area around that root that control those nematodes as they come in so they can't move throughout that zone? So there's a lot of strategies with the seed treatment. And I guess I think uh, that's probably one of the seed treatment categories that still has yet to be developed based on how we approach it. I think it might be multiple modes of action in this case where maybe we have an active ingredient. Maybe we have a bacteria like Bacillus firmus or Pasteuria nishizawi, whatever it might be. Which is my favorite one personally. Yeah. So yeah, we might be able to combine a lot of those and have the best situation. All right, so we talked a lot about seed selection, performance, using wind packs to spread your diversity out. We've talked about maturities and being able to spread your risk out by maybe taking some early beans and some late beans, maybe putting a little bit of harvest of a, an early corn variety in there to allow for full maturity beans. One other factor, what's the last factor when it comes to soybean seed selection as it pertains to planning for a good crop for next year? Are you asking me or are you going to... Yeah, well, you always have one more. You always have one more. (laughs) Okay. I'm that guy that has just the one more. No, is it... I had two more actually this time. you have two more? Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So briefly, one of them, and I think we touched on this, but I think your seed selection for 2020 starts in 2019. And it's identifying and using in-season imagery to know when those, so as those crops start to change maturity, some areas, as we know from just the drive-by scouting mechanism, start to change quicker than others. 
satellite imagery or in-season imagery within that R7 tool gives us the ability to see where that's occurring. And we got to get our tails out there and do a better job identifying why is it maturing early? Was it a disease? Was it a cyst pressure? Was it all these things we talked about? Was it white mold? Because that'll give us the cliff notes for how we can make the decision the following year. So if we're missing that, we're missing a lot of our seed selection points that we talked about. And then the last thing that we didn't talk about, which I could probably make in a whole nother episode, but it's soybean seed population. And so not necessarily is that a control by variety, but that's definitely another management factor that can be taken into account after that variety is chosen to say, hey, Joel, maybe we chose a variety that we knew that it wasn't that good against white mold. Well, we put it on a field that had white mold because we have a really high potential yield in that field. What can we do to mitigate white mold? perhaps change the population. Lower population, keep that canopy open, keep the stature of the plant relatively short, statured, but still have the ability to put on nodes and flower out. So population definitely plays into some of the dynamics. And one thing we always have to remember with population, it's not about beans or plants per acre like it is with corn. It's about nodes per acre. So if I have 150,000 soybean plants per acre and I got 10 nodes per plant, that's 1,500 nodes per acre. If I have 100,000 soybean plants and I get 15 nodes per plant, same nodes, right? Same yield potential as far as nodes per acre. And I think we got to look a little bit more into that. And uh, if you come to one of my answer plot sessions, I do talk a lot about the soybean population. And I actually will make you step into the block and pick <laughs> which population you want without necessarily telling you which one I'm going to put you in because it's really that subtle of a change. Well, that nodes per acre, that's really the inverse of a planting population or a verberate planting for corn. You talked about using the R7 tool for that. What you're talking about there is really using higher densities in areas that are a little bit more drought prone, trying to get that IDC, node, IDC nodes per acre up, and then using a lower population in some of your you know, sweeter, better water holding capacity ground. Yes. So almost inverse of what you would typically do for corn. Yeah. I mean, we've had uh, from Ohio to Indiana, southern Minnesota, we've had a lot of uh, technology specialists out at some of our retailers really getting on and working with farmers in a way that nobody else is able to have a conversation on beans, sometimes because they start with the verberate planting technology. Mm -hmm. So I, I know if you haven't had a conversation with your agronomist about verberate population in beans, it may be one of the pieces that really opens your eyes. And a little bit like the limbo stick, you might be surprised at how low you can go, provided you have a seed treatment on. One last piece to loop back to, John, you, you talked about, you know, using R7 and imagery for scouting of those diseases. You know, this year, actually, BASF launched a tool in their digital platform called Zarvio. It starts with an X. Mm -hmm. And Zarvio Scouting uses a similar technology that your iPhone that does the facial recognition uses. It uses similar technology to point the camera at the soybean plant and allows you to assess some of the diseases that might be out there using image analysis. And they have hundreds of thousands of plant images that they've calibrated a model towards, and they parameterize this model. So if you want to download it from you know, one of the stores, it's uh, X-A-R-V-I-O, the Zarvio scouting tool, to help you uh, identify disease. Now, I know you happen to just be a walking encyclopedia of plant diseases, and you're calibrated fairly well to those. But for a farmer who maybe sees the diseases you know, once in a while and doesn't get out on everybody's fields, that scouting app can be a pretty handy thing to validate 
frog eye versus, you know, the other one that looks kind of like it. So that's an interesting way to use technology for scouting. Cool. So I got to do my two more things, and now you got the one last thing. Do you have anything more, Joel? <laughs> no, I think I think soybean yields have continued to increase. They're maybe not as dynamic as corn when it comes to responsiveness, but it's really about unpacking this disease package and incorporating new management practices. And oftentimes the management practices are inverse what it is for corn, whether it's plant nutrition, whether it's disease pressure and moderating that, but it all starts with good seed selection. So this wraps up our conversation on soybean seed selection for 2020. You've been listening to the Deal with Yield podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com. 